Good morning. Um, my name is Steve-O, and uh, Chris didn't ask me to share this, but uh, as we were singing the 10,000 Reasons, I love this, this verse. You're rich in love, and you're slow to anger. Your name is great, and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. And uh, I'd like to make that prayer for us as we uh, enter into the reading of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you asking that you would draw us near to you. Holy Spirit, unless you show up and unless you speak your words to us, we are blind, we are deaf. Our hearts cannot move, cannot move an inch towards you unless you come to us. So Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would meet us here, that you would give us understanding, that you may draw our hearts to you, that we may see just your beauty, your love, your depth, your grace, your kindness, your goodness. I pray that you would move our hearts, that we would leap with joy, and we would respond in praise. I pray that you would make the love of Jesus so real and beautiful today that we cannot help but to draw to you and fall at your feet. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for the good stuff. <laughs> the reading from Scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 3, 10-17. This is the reading of God's Word. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve-O. We are, uh, we're returning to the series that we started uh, since Easter this morning. We're going to spend four weeks here and then take a little break and then finish it a little bit later. Uh, reminding ourselves, really what we're doing is reminding ourselves of the identity of the church. Who and what is the church? And because it's been a little while since we've been there, it's been, we've had three or four weeks off. Sometimes, you know, it's just helpful to come up for breath. And, uh, and we're going to do that kind of, this morning is kind of coming up for breath and refocusing before we start uh, getting back into things. This morning is going to be intentionally more broad and less narrow. Uh, and I know in advance I'm going to give you this, this little caveat or this little warning. This morning is going to be a little more heady and a little less earthy. So if you're just craving 
really earthy, nitty-gritty, practical stuff, um, you can take a nap, and I will wake you up in about 30 minutes, and, um, and you'll be refreshed for the rest of the day. <laughs> no, actually, as, as Steve-O prayed, um, the Bible is a story of God coming to us and of us falling in love with Jesus. And the more we fall in love with Jesus, the more it will inevitably change who we are. And that's really what we're doing. Uh, we're reminding ourselves this morning in a sense of our identity. When I was uh, very young, I, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, I remember my brother and I were sitting around the dinner table with my mom and dad, and my mother corrected us for something because we were misbehaving. And the way she corrected us was she said, Chris, you're a dunaway. We don't do that. You're a dunaway. See, my mom knew that, that our identity actually determines how we behave. And this is true in various aspects. Your identity determines how you behave. In this series, we've really been thinking about how we behave. We've informally called this sermon series One Another, and we're looking at the different biblical commands of, of how God calls us to interact with one another. That's behavior. But your identity determines how you behave. And so it's important every now and then to remind ourselves, why does God call us to do that? That's what we're looking at this morning. This morning, we're looking at our identity as Christians, and we're going to do it through the lens of the metaphor of the temple. We're going to think a lot about the temple this morning, and we're going to realize that the temple is not some old dusty building that, you know, is, is irrelevant. Um, I'll, give, I'll give it away. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? So when we read about the temple, even when we read about the temple in the Old Testament, which we're going to do a lot of this morning, this applies to you. This is your identity. So let's jump in. When you think of a temple, I don't know what you think of, but the function of a temple, whether it's the ancient Jewish temple or a lot of other religions as well, the temple is where God is, right? Where God is present. You even hear this uh, some people think of, they wouldn't say this, this church or modern churches are temples, but, but there's still kind of a sense of God's presence here, right? I remember, again, being young and running through a sanctuary of our old church and being scolded because you don't run in God's house, as though God is somehow uniquely present in, within these four walls. A temple is simply where God dwells with his people. This actually is true in the whole Bible. So what I'm going to do this morning, and this is why I said this is going to be a little bit heady, is we're going to, we're going to, we're going to look at the whole Bible, literally starting in Genesis 1 and finishing in Revelation 21, and tracing the story of the temple throughout all of Scripture. Because in Genesis 1, which is page 1 of your Bible, it's when, remember, it's the thing, how it starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you read Genesis 1 through the lens and the understanding of an ancient Hebrew reader, an ancient Jew, you realize that Genesis 1 is all about God setting up the universe as his temple. Genesis 1 is not written to answer how God created the earth. And did it happen in six literal days or not? That's completely beside the point. An ancient Hebrew reader wouldn't have even thought of that question. Genesis 1 is written for one purpose. John Walton, a great Old Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, God sets up the cosmos in Genesis 1 to serve as his temple in which he will find rest and order and equilibrium which he's established. 
In other words, the author of Genesis is writing the whole creation, the first six days of creation, when God makes everything there is, to say God made everything so that he might dwell with you. Because remember, the temple is where God dwells. And then in Genesis 2, so in Genesis 1, God creates everything. Genesis 2 is kind of like this, this like in a movie, you zoom in really, really narrowly. In Genesis 2, God creates the garden. And we see that God is not just present everywhere, but he's present intimately and personally. In fact, in Genesis 2, the Hebrew word for God actually changes. And the author starts to use the word Yahweh, which is God's personal name. It's almost like his first name. He becomes intimate and personal. Another Old Testament scholar, Gordon Wenham, points out that when you read Genesis 2 and the description of the Garden of Eden, it's a temple. And, and we don't have time to get into this, and I don't even understand it all, uh, but every aspect of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 mirrors an aspect of the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem. What's the point? That in creation, God wants to dwell with his people because the temple is where God dwells with his people which gets us to Genesis 3. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that Genesis 3 is the story of sin, and it's a story of how Adam and Eve and really all of humankind sin. Um, What happens? Do you remember the consequence? Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, from the temple. So so the whole rest of the Bible becomes, in a way, a way of reconciling this one central tension that on the one hand, God wants to dwell with his people, and on the other hand, God cannot coexist with sin. And we're trying to reconcile, how can a God who wants to be with us be with us if he cannot coexist with sin? And we've got to point out that God, it's not that that sin would ruin God, as though sin is more powerful than God, but it's that that God um, would destroy sin. How can God dwell with his people when people sin and God cannot coexist with him? The whole rest of the Bible from Genesis 4 until Revelation 22 is God answering that question. And let me point out again from the outset, and I'm going to say this several times, at this point we might expect the rest of the Bible to be the story of how can I get back to God Okay, we've got this problem, it's called sin, so how can I overcome sin and get back to God? In fact, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible is. The Bible is not the story of how you and I can get back to God, it's the story of how God can get back to us. It's the story of God's grace and God's initiative of God taking action, not of us making things happen for ourselves. It's the story of God coming to be with man, not of man going to be with God. So let's look at how that develops through the lens of the temple. The first stop in this is Exodus. So we're going to zoom way ahead in, in the, the, the cosmic timeline, so to speak. God has just rescued his people from Israel. He's taking them on a journey to what's called the promised land, which will be, as far as they know, their forever home. He's rescued them from slavery, and he tells them, build a tabernacle. A tabernacle is a fancy word for a big tent. And the tabernacle, as God's people, they're they're functionally homeless. They're just going from place to place on their way to their journey. That's God's portable home, so to speak. The tabernacle is kind of like a mobile and portable temple. It's where God dwells with his people while they're waiting for their forever home. 
And listen to how Exodus chapter 40, this is the very last paragraph in Exodus, the story of God's people escaping from slavery. Listen to what happens. They built this tent, and then the cloud, which symbolizes God's presence, covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You see what's happening? God is setting up a space where he can dwell with his people. Even after they've rebelled and even after they're, while they're on their way, God is setting up a place where he can dwell with his people. About 400 years after that, eventually the Israelites make it into their promised land. King David is the king, a man after God's own heart, and he wants to build God a home. God has still been in a tabernacle, and David figures if we're in our long-term home, let's quit renting and let's actually buy a place. Let's build you a, a house suitable for God. And in 2 Samuel 7, listen to what God tells David. He asks, he says, are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I haven't dwelt in a house since the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. And then God turns the tables. Listen to what God tells David. He says, I will build a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, in the short term, that's exactly what happens. And David's son Solomon becomes the king, and he builds God a temple. The temple itself is the most spectacular building that's probably ever been built. I think of um, uh, the most spectacular building I've ever seen in my life has been uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Vatican and visited St. Peter's Basilica. It is mind-boggling. The scope, the size, the artistry, the detail... And the temple probably would have been a building that put that to shame, not necessarily in its size, but in its opulence and ornate decoration. God builds a temple. Solomon builds a temple where God dwells with his people. Now, there's this one question that we still haven't answered, and I'm going to keep reminding us of this as well, that if God cannot coexist with sin, then how can he dwell in a temple with his people? That's a really good question. When God gives the instructions for the temple, he says, set apart one space called the holy of holies or the holy place. And God's presence, he says, will actually be in that holy place. It's separated from the rest of the temple by a very, very, very thick curtain as if it would contain God. Not to protect God so much, but to protect us. And here's what happens. Solomon builds the temple, 1 Kings 8, And the priests withdrew from the holy, so they kind of consecrated the holy of holies. They withdrew, and the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And King Solomon said, I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So far, throughout the whole Old Testament, God has been setting up his temple as a place where he can dwell with his people. Now, if you know the rest of the story of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it's just a long, slow descent. God's people keep abandoning him, keep rejecting him, keep sinning him. They sin and sin, and God is merciful and patient and patient until we get to Ezekiel 10. God's people have have done nothing but turn their backs for hundreds of years on their merciful God. They insist, we want to serve other gods, not you. And finally, God says, in effect, he says, 
okay, as you will. And in Ezekiel 10, you read that the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. It's right after this that the Babylonians come in, they conquer the Israelites, and they literally reduce the temple, the physical structure, to rubble, physically doing what symbolically the Israelites have done to themselves. Seventy years later, the Israelites rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And you think, as you're reading the history of Israel, you think this is the glorious climax. They've regained entry into Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple And nothing happens. It's shocking in its silence. You can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. The Israelites rebuild the temple to a T, speck for speck. And God's glory never returns. Which means that God has literally left the building. You have a vacant temple. What gives? We're moving quickly, I know. In John 1, John starts to talk about Jesus. And he says this in John chapter 1, verse 14. This is a very famous verse. It says, The word became flesh and dwelt among them. Now, the word he's, is a kind of a stand-in, the way that John is talking about Jesus The word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, which isn't a bad translation, but if you know Greek, anybody know Greek? If you know Greek, you know it's not a literal translation. Do you want to know what John literally writes there? The word became flesh and tabernacled among them. Do you know that? What's the tabernacle? Remember? The tabernacle is where God dwells among his people in the wilderness before they've reached their forever home. Does that sound familiar? Jesus Christ becomes the tabernacle of God. God came in the flesh to make things right once for all. Jesus is the temple of God. Why did God not return his presence to the temple when the Jews rebuilt it in 500 B.C.? because he knew he was coming in the flesh. And the whole Old Testament temple symbolism, you realize, hasn't been about the temple at all. The whole story of the temple in the Old Testament has been building towards Jesus, which is what Jesus says. He says it in Matthew 12, verse 6, when he says, he's talking about himself, he says, there is one greater than the temple who is here. Now, to an ancient Jew, to say that somebody can be greater than the temple is blasphemy. They also think he's blaspheming in John chapter 2 when he says, you destroyed this temple. He's speaking in the temple, by the way, the one they rebuilt 500 years prior. He's in the temple and he's teaching. He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. How can you rebuild the temple in three days? Well, John loves to give us these little helpful interpretive notes, and he says, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. Now pause. I told you I was going to come back to this. Think back to God's promise to David. Remember what God told David in 2 Samuel? Let me read it again for you. And listen with two ears, one ear listening for the immediate fulfillment in Solomon and one ear listening to the long-term fulfillment in Jesus. God told David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. 
By the way, remember how Matthew 1 starts? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. God tells David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he is the one who will build a house for my name. Jesus is God's offspring. Jesus is David's offspring, and he's the true temple. So while Solomon is the immediate short-term fulfillment, the whole time God has had in mind, I need a way to be present with my people, and the temple just won't cut it. So even in his promise to David, which was literally a thousand years before Jesus, God knows I'm sending my son to be my presence among my people. God has come to dwell with man. Now, there's still one problem. Remember, God cannot coexist with sin. So how do we deal with that? This is one of those things that kind of will start to pick it apart a little bit. It has to get a little bit more mysterious before it can get more clear. It's like, um, you know, when you clean out your basement, you've got to make a bigger mess before you can clean up the mess. So we're going to make a little bit of a bigger mess here. In the period of the exile, so let's go back. For the kings in the exile, eventually the temple is destroyed because of the sin of God's people. Eventually the temple was rebuilt, but God's presence did not re-enter the temple. Remember that? In Jesus Christ, the sin of God's people became such that God's presence left the temple. Exact same thing happening, but in God the temple instead of this bricks-and-mortar building. God left the temple. How do we know? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the temple was destroyed, reduced to rubble. He bled out. And actually, Mark tells us in Mark 15 that remember that thick curtain that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple? Mark tells us that curtain was ripped top to bottom. As if to say that God's presence and God's glory, because, because of his judgment on sin, are on the loose. But this time it's good news. Because Jesus, remember what Jesus said, destroy this temple and on the third day I will rebuild it. On the third day Jesus was raised from the dead and he broke sins back. And sin and death no longer reign. Why? Because the curtain has been torn. Remember, the curtain and the Holy of Holies, the separation between God and humanity is not there to protect God from us, but to protect us from God. It's there to protect a sinful people from a God who cannot coexist with sin. But when Jesus died and when that temple was destroyed, God poured out his judgment on sin without having poured out his judgment on us. So that finally, the veil, the curtain, can be ripped in half, and God's presence can start to invade the whole world, and God finally can start to be present among his people again, which is how we get, finally, to the scripture reading today. Do you wonder if I was ever going to get there? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you are God's temple? What's the temple? The temple is where God dwells among his people. 
which is a bold claim. In fact, uh, two of the best New Testament theologians alive today, Brian Rosner and Roy Champa, who wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians, write that this claim is, this is their quote, patently ludicrous to that culture. I just want to call out one specific detail that's really, really important and that's near and dear to my heart as a Southerner, that if Paul were a Southerner, here's how we would translate what's written in 1 Corinthians 3. He would have written, he should have written probably, or our translators should have translated, don't y'all know that y'all are God's temple and God's spirit dwells among y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and y'all together are that temple. Every time you see the word you in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 7, it's plural. He doesn't mean you individually. He means y'all. He means the church, all of us together. Why do I emphasize that? What is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying? What is God saying? He's saying that his presence and his temple in this world, in the in-between, is the church. The church is the temple of God, and in and through the church, God himself is present in our world. Paul doesn't say that you individually are God's temple. That's way too much pressure to put on any one person. There's a little bit of sense where, yes, you can be kind of an example of God's presence, but but that's not what he's saying. He's more true than that, more true than just that Western individualistic understanding, is that when and where, anytime, when and where the church is gathered, God himself is present which includes our Sunday morning worship services, but it includes any other number of gatherings as well. Remember how Jesus puts it in Matthew 18? You've all heard this verse quoted many times out of context, but we've all heard it quoted, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am among them. Jesus is saying, my presence is there with you when you're gathered in my name. The church is God's temple. Now, what is the church? Let's remind ourselves. What is the church? We've been talking a lot about this. The church is not a building. It's not bricks and mortar, as if God is present inside these four walls, but not present outside the walls. The church is not an organization to be run and managed well and efficiently. And church is not an event, this thing we do every week on Sunday mornings, as though God is present now, but he's not present at other times. Each of those things is good, and they all serve the church, but the church is so much more than that. Jesus says, when we gather in his name, we are the presence of God, which means by implication that the solution to the problem of sin is the temple of God. First in Jesus but made visible in our world today through the church. There's a great missiologist in London named Christopher Wright who who famously wrote once, he says, God doesn't have a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission in the world. God has one aim in this world, which is to be glorified through his presence together with his people. How does he do that? The church. The church. You see what this means? 
What it, what it frankly probably means, and this is probably true in some respect for every one of us, including me, I'm not, I'm not immune from this, is that we don't take the church nearly seriously enough. We're playing all these little games and we're worrying about all these silly and petty little things and God has in mind for us to be his tangible presence in the world. I mean, I've informally titled this sermon series One Another and we've been looking at the different areas where Scripture teaches us how to interact with one another. How do we interact with, how do we treat one another? But you see, because the church is people, it's us, Because the church is the people of God who are committed to God and to one another in the love of Christ, because we are the temple of God, then how we treat and interact with one another becomes the visible representation of God's presence in the world. In other words, how we interact with one another is how the world understands God. That's heavy. You heard the, I don't know if it's apocryphal or if he actually said it, but there's the quote that's often attributed to Gandhi who said, I would readily become a Christian if it weren't for all the Christians I've met. How we treat one another and how we interact with one another becomes the visible, tangible representation of God's presence in the world. And when a watching world watches us, Do we realize this? They are watching God. If we are the temple, if we are, in a sense, and remember, Jesus is the true temple, but if we are the temple, if we are, in a sense, God's presence in the world, then how we love one another determines how the world sees and experiences and notices and knows God. I mentioned before, I know this is, this is a little more heady. There's a lot going on. And you could unpack this in all sorts of different ways, and we'll continue to do that through the next couple weeks. But this is kind of like laying the foundation for the rest of the series. How does it affect how we treat one another, how we interact with one another, when we remember that we are the temple of God? That's where we're going in the next few weeks. I promised you I I would take you all the way to the end of Scripture and not leave you hanging. So listen to this. In Revelation 21, the second to last chapter of the the, um, Bible, the whole Bible, we started in Genesis 1. We go all the way to Revelation 21 and what happens. God has finished making the new creation. He's finished restoring all things and making all things right. And what is the declaration that happens? Listen to this. Now, it says, this is Revelation 21, verse 3, now the dwelling of God is with men, gender neutral, humans. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. What do many of us expect to read? Many of us expect to write, now the dwelling of men is with God and they will live with him as though we're trying to get to him. But no, that's not what happens. What does God say? He says, I have come to dwell with you in your world. The Bible is not the story of man trying to figure out how we can dwell with God. It's a story of God who has made it so that he can dwell with man. The point of our faith is not 
You know, you know the, the old, I think it's an old gospel tone, this world is not my own, I'm just a passing through. That's thoroughly unbiblical. This world is our own, and we are in this world, and this is the world where God wants to dwell with us, and in the new creation, he will make all things new and right. It's not this world is just a passing through, so nothing here matters. I'm just going to heaven when I die. Forget about all the rest. No, God is coming to be with us. You know, when you have a house guest coming for dinner, imagine you have a very important house guest coming for dinner. What do you do? You prepare. You get things in order. You, you plan. You do everything you can in such a way that you can honor your house guest. God is coming to dwell with us. He is with us in some sense now. He will be with us fully one day. He will come to be with us forever. He will come to make everything sad come untrue. And we get to be the temple where he is present with his people. Let's pray. Lord, this is something we could explore maybe for the rest of our lives. But it's striking that even in all of our sin and our weakness and our kind of miffed attempts at whatever, that you would still choose us to be your temple, to be your presence. And in one sense, it's probably right to be struck by a little bit of fear and a little, oh, the gravity of it. But we remember that it's only possible through Jesus in whom we have forgiveness of sins and resurrection to new life. In other words, you have called us to be your temple and you equip us to be your temple through your word and through your spirit. So make us sensitive to you and to your word and your spirit. And would you be in us, in our church and among our family, your presence throughout the world. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.